0: Have you ever made an assumption about somebody when first meeting them that was terribly wrong? Have you ever made an assumption about someone when first meeting them that was terribly wrong? Um, One of uh, my best stories about this is that when I was in college, I was the head of um, uh, college Republicans. And I knew that I was going to meet... My adversary, the head of the Young Democrats. I had all sorts of conceptions about him. He was going to be, you know, this terrible person, and we were going to fight nonstop, and, you know, we would have different opinions on everything, and I wouldn't even be able to respect him. Well, we got together to coordinate one of the events there at the student Um, Center and it turns out that all my assumptions were wrong. He was this wonderful guy. Maybe I wasn't the wonderful guy. He was the wonderful guy. He he, he was this guy that uh, you know was very articulate that had really well-reasoned arguments that actually um, we agreed on some things more than I thought we would and uh, we went forth and actually became best friends. He's my best friend from college my best friend from college. He's now an Eastern Orthodox deacon. Um, And some of you met him. He was here at Evensong a few months ago, Luke Laboda. Um, He used to be uh, uh, my prime adversary in the political world. I was in political science, for those of you that don't know that. So when we make assumptions about people, oftentimes we're dead wrong, right? And we see an example of that. In scripture, once again, as we look here in Genesis with the patriarch Abraham and the king Abimelech. So I invite you to open up with me, either in your order of service to the reading, which is Genesis chapter 21, verse 22 through 24, or in your Bibles, of course to Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 22. You might be wondering, what does that have to do with today's reading? Well, remember that we've met Abimelech before, have we not, in our series? King Abimelech, you'll remember back um, earlier, is the king... That Abraham tries to pass off his wife, Sarah, as his sister on, right? So, just as a refresher, remember that Abraham is going through Canaan, and King Abimelech, back earlier, is actually this king, the king of Gerar, right? So, if you have your Bibles open, feel free to turn back with me to chapter 20, right? Beginning of chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of his sister, said of his, and Abraham said of Sarah, rather, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So you see, King Abimelech actually is the better character in that story. Actually, King Abimelech is the one who fears God's law and it is Abraham who fears Abimelech wrongly, making an entirely wrong assumption that he's a godless king and that his people are godless. But before Abimelech could commit that, that act of adultery, God intervened. And God goes on to tell Abimelech in that chapter in a dream that Abraham is a prophet and that he will pray for him and heal him. And of course, Abimelech sees this. Remember, because of this act of, of, Abimelech, of Abimelech back in that chapter, I believe Father Joshua preached on this several weeks ago. Because of that act, Abimelech's wife and maidservants are made unable to have children until Abraham prays for them. And so we continue with that character today as we look at a treaty between Abraham and Abimelech in the latter part of chapter 21. So that takes us to today's reading. But that background is really important. Look at verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Philco, Philco, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, "God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will deal falsely—that you will not rather deal falsely with me or with my descendants." Or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so deal with me and with the land that you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And what's fascinating here is that this first part of the passage is a testimony given by King Abimelech about God and God's power in Abraham's life. Did you catch that? But Abimelech is giving a testimony or a witness to what he sees going on in Abraham's life. God is with you in all that you do, he says. And then he says, Swear by your God. Now, why is that interesting? Because what this bespeaks is Abimelech having faith or belief in the one true God. Notice... Abimelech would not say swear by your God if he didn't believe that his God was powerful. And those of you that remember that last story in chapter 20 know that Abimelech has seen a demonstration of Yahweh, of the one true God's power, right? And so he comes to Abraham with that in mind. So Abraham agrees to the treaty, but then he brings up a sticking point, right? wells wells now you and i look at this and it doesn't make much sense to us in the modern 21st century but wells are a big thing in this part of the world even today right water is a big thing in the arid parts of the world we take for granted that you can just flip on the tap and have fresh clean water to drink and our farmers have plenty of water they can draw from the rivers and the lake and feed our crops, right? Although, even that's interesting, that, that we're, we're not as insulated as we think. Having worked on a farm, I can tell you, irrigation, um, at least in this part of the country, only maintains produce. We can't actually grow it without the rain. But here, at this part of history, and in this part of the world, wells are a huge thing, because not only are they used for farming, but they're used to feed, uh, to, to to give water to all of the livestock, which is the primary source of wealth for these people, right? These are nomads. They're driving their sheep, and they're driving their herds across. And Abraham and Abimelech are no exception. Without water, their wealth dries up. Without water, they become completely poor. And so this is a sticking point. Look at verse 25. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized Abimelech said I do not know who has done this thing you did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and to the two men made and the two men made a covenant Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, "What is the meaning of these seven ewes that you have set apart?" He said, "These are seven ewes that you will take from my hand, this, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well." So the deal here is that Abraham's servants had dug this well. Again, no small feat in ancient times. And Biblical servants had come and taken it. And this was a big deal. But the two men hammer out an agreement. And Abraham gives those seven ewes as a sign of the agreement. The scene ends with Abraham planting a tamarisk tree and calling on the name of God. Initially... This passage seems really insignificant, doesn't it? It just seems to be some historical record about a treaty. But look deeper at what's going on here. For initially, this simple passage actually is found to have some great sacred his, um, significance. It's both theologically significant and it's morally significant in how we act with one another, is theologically, it's really important because this act is the first act that ties Abraham to the land of Canaan. This act is the first act that ties Abraham to the land of Canaan. Now, why would I say that? Remember about wells, right? Remember about property with nomads, right? Nomads typically don't have property. They just kind of wander around and graze, right? Or they might have, you know, big areas that they feed their their um, flocks on, but not with real defining boundaries. What does this well do? What does this well do? It pins him to a location. Yeah, this is the ancient version of dropping that Google pin on your map right? And saying, this will be my home. This will be my home. And so this well at Beersheba anchors Abraham to a part of the land. You see, to our modern eyes, we see the last story about Isaac as the whole story, right? Remember, God's promise to Abraham wasn't just about having a son, about having his seed inherit this land, but was to say to him that his family, his household would in fact live in this land of Cana forever. But that's part of the eternal promise that God makes to Abraham. And here we see that promise coming to fruition. I bet you didn't see that at first, because I didn't. But do you see it now? Do you see it now that this is God fulfilling his promise just as much As Isaac being born miraculously is God fulfilling his promise. Hugely theologically significant. Abraham has been a sojourner, a nomad to this point. Second of all, why does Abraham plant a tree? Why does Abraham plant a tree? Is he like a tree lover? Is he a tree hugger? Is he a greenie? Like, what, what's the point here? Is it he just like, well, I think, you know, I need to landscape around this well, make it look a little better? No, of course not. I think we have enough sense to scratch our heads and say, there's something more going on here, right? And the text actually gives us some hints to that. Look at verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Now, whenever you see in Scripture, particularly in Genesis, whenever you see Abraham interacting with God, how he's interacting is really important, and the names that is used for God is really important. right? So what do we see here? We see the tree planting being how he's interacting with God, Right? Calling upon him. Calling upon him is important. Right? The call itself. But then, what is the title of the Lord here? Right? You see the Lord, L-O-R-D, right? Which you know is a shorthand for God's formal name. Right? We know that. But then, what is it? The name of the Lord, comma, let's say it together, You probably can see it. The everlasting God. The everlasting God. What is Abraham doing here? He is giving witness and honor to the Lord, the everlasting God. So tamarisk trees, which you probably aren't familiar with, are actually a particular type of tree. They are evergreens, evergreens. Did you know that when you put Christmas trees up in your house, you're actually giving a testimony to God? Historically, the reason that we use evergreen Christmas trees is a symbol of eternal life. It's a symbol that God's life never departs. God's life never departs, just like the evergreen tree never withers and dies. At least it shouldn't. Right? And so this tamarisk tree ties with God's title here as everlasting God. Do you see Abraham here is giving witness to the fact that God has fulfilled his promise in giving him this well in this treaty with Abimelech? Gordon Wenham, the the scholar, one of the scholars of uh, Genesis, talks about this and the significance of this. In Hebrew, the word is El Olam, or God Eternal. And so importantly, this is part of God's covenant from way back in Genesis chapter 12, where we began our series. That Abraham will be a father, not just of a people, but of a people in this land. So what does this passage have to say to the church? What's it have to say to us, right? How do water rights relate to us today? Well, number one is a simple point that should not be missed. That God desires us to live in peace with our neighbors. St. Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, he writes in the book of, of Romans. Abraham does that here. Remember, God has given him this land. What could Abraham do? He has God's decree that this will all be his one day and his descendants He could have a real attitude, couldn't he? Couldn't he? He could go to Abimelech and say, to heck with you, buddy. God has given me this. You get off here. Interestingly, Abraham actually has a very real grievance in this text about the well. It seems that Abimelech's servants have stolen it from him. But what does Abraham do? Does he lash out? The Hebrew grammar actually shows that he's angry. It doesn't come through as clear in the English, but it shows that he's angry. And yet he restrains himself when it's obvious that Abimelech's servants are being devious. But he gives Abimelech the benefit of the doubt. As one ancient commentator puts it concisely on this text, the just man wrongs no one. Not even a man's name. The just man wrongs no one. Not even a man's name. Not even his name, not even his character, not even what we say about him. There's something for us always to keep in mind here as individuals, as part of the church, when dealing with other people. You know, many people say that trust is earned. And there's certainly something to that statement, right? That trust is earned. But at the same time, we should never make assumptions that hurt or wrong another person merely out of ignorance. We should never assume other people to not be trustworthy. Fear drove Abraham to the earlier interaction with Abimelech, didn't it? Remember, why is it that Abraham passes off Sarah as his sister? He fears that Abimelech and his nation is godless. Scripture tells us that. It's a wrong assumption. He assumes him to be untrustworthy. And because of that assumption, Abraham sins. It's true that God continues to be with him, but it causes great problems, right? And so here, Abraham does not make that same mistake again but rather he pauses. He pauses and sees what the full story is about this well. Abraham, the great patriarch, has sinned, but he has learned. And so should we, that God's ways are not always our ways and his knowledge of people's hearts is always more accurate than our knowledge an incomplete assessment of people. This is especially true In the church, right? And an especially important lesson, not about all others, but about ourselves too, within community. What does St. Paul write to the Ephesian church in our other lesson today? Look with me at it. Ephesians chapter 2, highlighting verse 13 through 16. Ephesians chapter 2, highlighting verse 13 through 16. It's on page five of your order of service. But now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's St. Paul writing to the Ephesians here? That Jesus Christ is our peace. And that when we're at peace with Christ, because of his sacrifice, we're called to be at peace with our brothers and sisters. That those that sacrifice, that Jesus being our peace ought to cause us to, di- to break down all of those divisive lines that we create as human beings. Because we have Christ, we have peace with one another. Secondly, that we can trust in God's promise. That's the second point of the sermon here. And this is a theme that you've heard before, yes? And you'll hear again, and again, and again, and again in Genesis because that's the main point of this series, right? Patriarchs and promises. That God's promises are reliable and God is trustworthy. You know, it's all the more ironic that God uses King Abimelech to first establish Abraham's household in Canaan for this reason. Abimelech, we see from this treaty, was actually the superior king. I won't get into why, but, but the way that the negotiating is done shows Abimelech to be the higher king and Abraham to be the vassal. Okay? And so it is that in this treaty, under God's watchful eye, Abraham's peace with Abimelech establishes him in the land fulfilling God's will. Does that make sense? It's kind of complicated. Let me say it again. By this treaty, Abraham, being at peace with Abimelech, the superior king, is rooted in Canaan, and this is the way that God establishes him in the land. Do you see that? That's probably not how, I guarantee you, that's not how Abraham thought it was going to happen. <laughs> right? I, I guess I can't guarantee because I'm not in Abraham's head, but that's certainly not the way that you or I would have this happen. And yet, in God's will, this is how it happens. This is how this promise is fulfilled. And so we have to trust in God's trustworthiness above our own understanding in his promise to us. Thirdly, God blesses us when we act in faith. God blesses us when we act in faith. Here, Abraham's faith in God is secure, and God's power and trustworthiness is testified to by both men, by both King Abimelech and by Abraham. Abraham is greatly blessed because of his faith, and so is Abimelech. So we see that in the New Testament, in the passage from the Gospel, so is the woman, who has suffered for 12 years with this issue of blood. Look at what Jesus says to her at the end of the Gospel passage. So this is on page 6. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your faith has made you well, says Jesus. Go in peace. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. She acts in faith thinking, if only I can touch his garment. She trusts in the goodness of God and is blessed because of it. If God heals this woman who has faith in this way, just to touch his garment. Imagine how much God can heal us who receive him, who have the Holy Spirit living in us and take the body and blood of Christ on a weekly basis. That's so much more than just touching the hem of his garment. Do you see, friends, when we come to the altar in faith, God does honor that and blesses it. So, in conclusion, let us be at peace with those around us, as best as we're able, not bec- and acknowledge that we don't know all of the ways that God is acting behind the scenes. Let us come to God with complete faith and trust in his promises, knowing that he will accomplish that which he's promised for us. And let us do our work that he's appointed us to do, trusting in that and not falling prey to fear. Finally, let us remember that he has promised holiness, goodness, healing, wholeness, and feeds us with himself for eternal life. Friends, let's walk in that. Let's walk in that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.